Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Teddy Troy, and this is New Books in Public Policy. Each week, we look at a new book that is on public policy, government policy, related issues, and we talk to the author about how he came to write the book and what its implications are for our national policy. This week, we're going to be talking to Walter Olson, the author of Schools for Misrule, Legal Academia and an Overlawyered America. Olson, who is interestingly not a lawyer, has a lot to say on the subject and how our law schools influence public policy at the highest levels. I first came across the book when I was reading an excerpt of it in Commentary Magazine. My friends Bill Zeiser and David DeRosier were doing the publicity for the book, and I asked them to set me up with Mr. Olson and see if we could have a conversation. And that is what we're going to have here today. So again, this is New Books in Public Policy, and we're going to be talking to Walter Olson about his book, Schools for Misrule, Legal Academia, and overlawyered America. Hello, we now have Walter Olson with us. He is a scholar, a senior fellow actually, at the Cato Institution here in Washington, previously the Manhattan Institute. And uh, thank you for joining us on the program. I'd love to uh, hear your thoughts on your book, but also if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Okay. I'm, first of all, not a lawyer, even though I write about law. My background is in economics originally. And I've done a series of books over the years on the excesses and sometimes crazinesses of the American uh, litigation system. And I also uh, am pretty well known for my blog, overlawyer.com, which is often credited as being uh, the oldest surviving blog about law. Given that you're an economist, how did you come to start writing about the law? And your overlawyered blog is, is quite well known, I must say. I was originally in a magazine called Regulation, which is now put out by Cato, but at that time was put out by the American Enterprise Institute, and it drew on uh, a galaxy of great economists and great law professors, and I had the experience, I don't know, embarrassing or otherwise, of finding that I was fascinated by what the law professors had to say. It was a whole new world, which uh, I was drawn to 
And I actually wanted to write more about that than about the economic issues that I came in on. You know, I first came across your book, although I've been familiar with your work for a long time, but I came across your book by reading the excerpt that you had in Commentary Magazine. And I really couldn't put it down. It was fascinating. You talked about the single perspective that there is at the law schools. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that single perspective is, why it exists, why law schools are the way they are, and what are the implications of that sort of single perspective? There is a sort of consensus, comfortable view uh, that uh, pervades the legal professoriate, and it is generally uh, a liberal left kind of uh, point of view. One of the uh, anecdotes that I tell is Harold Coe, the dean of Yale Law School, and now in the Obama administration in the State Department, uh, was greeting the entering class, and he said, uh, welcome entering class of 2000, whatever it is, welcome to the Republic of Conscience, welcome to Yale Law School. And that phrase caught me up dead, Republic of Conscience. <laughs> I don't know whether it's more funny, more pretentious, more open-ended or what, but it was as if... Uh, Getting a ticket into Yale Law School uh, was somehow a sign that you had um, a finer, purer conscience than uh, people who were going to medical school or engineering school or out to work for a living. And I thought that needed to be challenged. I also thought that it tied in with what I mentioned as the comfortable political consensus, where you really can, you know, it, to reduce it to liberal, conservative, or Republican Democrat terms. Uh, you, it's not unusual to find an 8 to 1, 10 to 1 ratio. Uh, and this is pretty well documented. The New York Times had a good article on it. Um, there may be one, there may be two outspoken libertarians or conservatives, but in general, it's very easy to get through uh, a uh, law school, uh, uh, you know, or as a student or, or perhaps even as a professor, and never find any particular challenge or pushback to the comfortable liberal presumptions that you bring. Yeah, you, you mentioned that, uh, that there's sort of this one perspective, but uh, it's interesting that the Supreme Court of the United States right now, every member of the Supreme Court, if I'm correct, has gone to either Harvard Law School or Yale Law School, uh, even though I know Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to Cornell, I believe, for, for a time. But all of them went to Harvard or Yale for at least some period of their law school career, and there is a majority of conservatives on the Supreme Court. How do you account for that? Well, for that to happen, Republican presidents had to be uh, engaged in a very artificial selection process in which they picked people who were, I once put it, at war with the uh, ethos of the institutions that they, they emerged from. And certainly you can see with, uh, uh, you know, Scalia that uh, although he is of the legal academy and he was a very distinguished law professor, uh, he was uh, almost alone. He was so far on a limb uh, pursuing his ideas. And uh, that has been the uh, general manner of selection, if I may say so, for um, more than one Republican president, which is find someone who and, and will come in for an interview, and when you ask them about uh, the state of legal academia, they will get, uh, you know, m m make it emphatic that they are at odds with it. Uh, that's how we got four and a half or five conservatives on the Supreme Court, and we certainly wouldn't have gotten it by picking randomly from Yale and Harvard. Uh, professors or, or, or even students. Yeah, obviously I know what you mean by four and a half justices or a conservative on the Supreme Court, but perhaps you can explain it to the listeners. <laughs> well, 
It may be unfair to uh, Justice Kennedy, as, as it might have been unfair to Justice O'Connor uh, before him, to uh, treat them as, as half a justice. Of course, he, he is a complete justice. It's just that he his instincts are only about half conservative. And that means that he is often left as the swing vote, um, uh, you know, keeping the court conservative on certain issues, uh, giving liberals victories on many others. Yeah, it seems to me kind of interesting that whether you're liberal or conservative, when you are picking a Supreme Court justice, it's almost mandatory these days that you must pick from Harvard or Yale or, or one of those schools. In fact, when President Bush tried to pick someone who was not from one of the elite schools, I'm talking about Harriet Myers, the uh, the cacophony of assaults from the right as well as, well, the left was a little quieter about it, but uh, the right was certainly brutal in their assaults against her because she was not from one of these elite schools that they purport to hate. What's going on there? Well, there was more going on with the Myers nomination, so I would not reduce it to just the elite versus non-elite uh, thing. But what you're getting at more broadly certainly is a remarkable thing about legal academia, which is the status stratification uh, is just extraordinary. And especially when you bear in mind that these are institutions that make a big to-do about egalitarianism. I mean, that no one talks about again as far as uh, inclusiveness and, uh, you know, the need to overcome uh, class and uh, status um, uh, you know, the <coughs> dead hands of the past and so forth. And then when you look at how they uh, rate uh, applicants, uh, potential faculty, uh, you know, almost anything, uh, you will find that uh, there is this ultra-sensitive, exquisite uh, di differentiation between the number 11 and the number 13 institution. I uh, say that, you know, I've, I've looked at the hereditary aristocracy of England, and I still don't think that they are as aware of rank and title as American law schools are. And uh, this is not inevitable. It's not just the way academia has to be. Um, one of the um, driving forces, of course, is, is U.S. news rankings and the like. But if you look at an area like medical education, which where the stakes are really just as high, um, uh, studies have found that the perceived status of medical school that a doctor went to just is not as all important in determining their later career arc. And in the case of law schools, uh, most places will hire professors only from a very, very few institutions. You, you need to have gone to Yale, Harvard, Chicago, you know, may, maybe a couple of others. Um, many uh, of the top firms simply will not recruit below a certain level and, and, and so forth. And so that, for the legal profession, this means that the Harvard and Yale brands are uh, extraordinarily important brands. Yeah, I, I would take slight issue with one thing you said, which is uh, medical education is perhaps as important as uh, legal education. I would say, given that it's life and death, it, it might be more important. Um, but let, let me ask another question um, in terms of um, – uh, in terms of the book, you, you have a character in there who is not a famous person by any means, but you'd say he's hugely important. Who is William Prosser, and why is he important? Well, the career of William Prosser is a good example of how people who really are not known at all outside the legal economy uh, can have had more impact on American history than many uh, famous public figures that we could name. And Prosser was a professor uh, at several law schools. He wound up as uh, dean at Berkeley Bolt Hall in California. And he was the author of Prosser on Torts, which is the standard 
a book that lawyers learned tort law out of for decades. And he's the author also of several very influential law review articles. And he was then, even then, and certainly now, almost entirely unknown uh, to non-lawyers. But because he had strong views, which he put uh, in a persuasive way about the need for tort law to expand, that Russell was generally in favor of having uh, tort law do much, much more than it had been expected to do earlier in American history. It was, uh, it, you know, some people thought that he saw it as a kind of surrogate social insurance, uh, you know, even if uh, you didn't go that far, he certainly believed that it should be compensating many more accidents and paying for more pain and suffering and, and letting you sue more people over them and so forth. And these views uh, were presented uh, in a pedagogical context. Uh, people absorbed them in the case books. And they seemed natural and normal to uh, a generation or two of lawyers who graduated. And bit by bit, and it did take quite a few years, uh, courts began adopting process theories, and we got what is colloquially called the litigation explosion. We, the tort law in America began uh, liberalizing to an extent that had never been seen in any country ever, and we uh, grew a section of our legal system having to do with accidents and injuries uh, that was several times the size of the comparable sector um, in other advanced economies. Yeah, you, you had a, a better phrase for it, or an additional phrase for it. You called it the American disease. <laughs> That's not my phrase. <laughs> a phrase that often occurs when uh, non-Americans are writing about, uh, you know, not wanting their country to catch the American disease, which is um, uh, lawyers invading everything, taking their uh, one-third fee, and uh, the uh, uh, you know, whole sectors of uh, endeavor being. Uh, you know, slowed down if not paralyzed by people's fear of being sued. That is very much something that is correctly perceived as a, a special American problem. Uh, it is something that does not afflict our uh, industrial competitors to anywhere near the extent. And if you're looking for one, and there's a lot of theories you can offer, and in my earlier books I do, but uh, so underrated as a reason is that our legal academia, not just Foster, but another dozen professors that we could talk about, uh, were, um, uh, you know, of the mind that they thought litigation was generally uh, a grand thing that should be encouraged. Uh, if, you know, if we have uh, the strangeness of a hostile environment law, where, t uh, you know, telling a joke from last night's Seinfeld can uh, result in a <clears throat> complaint that you're engaged in sexual harassment, uh, you can trace back the theory of hostile environment and, and of, um, you know, people being harassed by third parties over jokes told to fourth parties, and you will find Professor Captain McKinnon. Uh, you know, she invented uh, a lot of the substance of that law more or less from scratch. And uh, so, for better or worse, and we could find cases where, where I like the results, but uh, it's a whole uh, influence on American policy and, and, and law that uh, lawyers know about and, and the general public doesn't focus on very much. You mentioned this joke from Seinfeld. Is that, is that a real case? And what was the joke in question? It, well, you're not going to get me to repeat that joke and open us all up to liability, are you? But it was a joke, it was a somewhat off-color joke, although since it was told on primetime TV, there's a limit as to how off-color it, uh, it, it might be. But the guy, I believe this was a lawsuit in Wisconsin, he came in and um, uh, the... Um, you know, basically around the water cooler, and 
The question that arose in the subsequent litigation was, um, uh, is an employer uh, legally expected to cleanse the atmosphere at work from the sort of junk that uh, everyone is exposed to if they flip on their TV during prime time? And it sounds paradoxical when you put it that way, because you'd think that anything that you could say on the radio or on TV, you of course could say in the office, but paradoxical or not, that's not at all the way we've set it up. You can say all sorts of things uh, on the airwaves uh, that would get you or your employer in legal trouble uh, if someone chose to file a complaint. Yeah, um, the listeners to this podcast are are pretty tech-savvy, so I would urge them, if they are interested in the joke, to look up Seinfeld joke lawsuit, and you will probably find it on Google. Now, Google has other dangers, and when I was reading your book, you talk about a mysterious Professor A who did not like evaluations that he got in the classroom, which were not very positive, and it had some real implications for legal policy and for law schools in general. I did a quick Google search, and I pretty quickly figured out that you're talking about a Professor Abel. I don't know why the mystery. I'd love to hear why you chose to disguise the professor's name and what was the meaning of his article on evaluations? Well, I was critical uh, in a way that inevitably it might uh, seem hurtful because he was writing about his own evaluations, many of which were very negative evaluations. Which and he chose to highlight. Right? Well, that was the thing. I mean, he chose to do uh, a big law review article about are student evaluations unfair? Why, look here at mine. You know, mine are terribly unfair because people keep saying that I've politicized the classroom and, uh, you know, they don't realize that uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, what law is inherently political and so forth and so on. Now, and he had politicized the classroom, as you show in well, the book. There, there is, you know, there's so much that I disagree with in his position, but at the same time, the um, uh, if you believe that he comes off looking... Um, in a very unflattering light, I thought that it um, might be perceived as piling on to also um, tell everyone his name. And uh, they certainly could get the point of the episode from uh, what I did give them. So why was the episode important, and why did his paper cause a stir, and what were the implications of that? Well, I had wondered, and I think a lot of people have wondered, when students do evaluations, uh, doesn't make a difference. That is, some teachers are much liked by students and uh, recommended to each other, you know, whatever you do, don't miss their class. Other teachers get very poor evaluations. And you can see this um, directly if you go to one of the websites where students evaluate their professors for the whole world to see, and there are such websites. Uh, you can, you don't get as good a view usually, although this was an exception, of the internal ones that are submitted to the university administration. So the question is, how much weight do the schools put on teaching in general and to the extent that evaluations are one clue uh, in, in distinguishing the, the great from the not so great, uh, how, much do they, how much weight do they give on that? So here was an article, which is, as I said, been widely cited uh, by a guy who admittedly uh, was acting from a sense of grievance of, you know, my, uh, have my evaluations uh, uh, been unfair and, and specifically are unfair evaluations shooting down the careers of professors like me because uh, their, their students are complaining that they're too political. He went out uh, trying to prove or disprove that and he certainly wasn't predisposed to believe that uh, people survived uh, with flying colors despite bad evaluations, but that is kind of what he found. He surveyed these law schools and he found that 
uh, most of them placed zero weight on student evaluations. Presumably, even with very extreme results, they, they placed zero weight on the difference between the one who got all rapes and the one who got all pounds. And the few that took into account placed very little weight on it. And so he concluded, perhaps against what he initially expected to find, that uh, the professors' careers were not being harmed by the fact that their students were in almost open revolt in the evaluation system. So it doesn't matter what they say in the classrooms, but there are ways by which professors are selected. And I think you talk about in the, in the chapter, there's excerpts in commentary, how difficult it is for a conservative to get a position at a law school. In what ways do they prevent certain ideologies from making it onto campus and others they encourage? Well, the legal academy is a club in which you are voted in by existing members of the club. And uh, the results are pretty much as you would expect, which is that uh, there is some conscious bias. There is a lot more that is uh, does not necessarily rise to the level of, uh, oh, I'm going to uh, you know, kick that one out uh, from consideration uh, because I don't like his politics. The, uh, the shared presumptions, the comfort levels, are often the most important thing that's going on. You know, you uh, see a stack of resumes and you notice, oh, you know, that one's mentor is someone that I know and I've interacted with. You know, this other one's mentor, who is that exactly? I've never read any of her articles. And, uh, you know, this one is working in a subject area why I know 10 people also about that subject area who want to, there'd be a lot more legal scholarship on it than this other one. So you wind up, and, and I, um, uh, I do think that's a lot of where it begins. The conservatives uh, are, um, you know, they'll have different mentors. They will be producing work in different areas that may not seem as interesting or, you know, you may not see its point if you disagree politically. And beyond that, you've got a bunch of different pressures on the schools. You've got the fact that uh, the accreditation agencies and uh, some of the funders and various others are pressing them uh, to do more identity politics studies. Uh, that is just a fact of life in the accreditation world, and it means that uh, if there are new jobs, often they will go to the person who can extend your diversity program in a particular direction, and that it better not be someone who's going to fall into the diversity category, but then do a completely different kind of uh, scholarly work. Or, I mean, so some schools can put up with that. Other schools say, you know, look, if we're hiring you is, uh, because we have no presence in, you know, Hispanic-oriented law, we don't want you writing about bankruptcy or some topic that, you know, has no uh, race, race or ethnic or gender content. So, so you have a bunch of different uh, pressures. One of them is uh, the somewhat artificially forced growth of clinical law. Clinical uh, law is, is the section of the law school that um, goes out and files real-world lawsuits as an educational enterprise, and it's uh, much more overwhelmingly uh, left in its uh, general leanings than uh, some other parts of the law school are. Uh, again, if you uh, add up the different specialties, you will find and, and there are good numbers on here uh, from someone who would normally disagree with me on, on almost everything, uh, a professor at the University of Chicago who is uh, toted up simply by citation counts, who are the most cited and therefore probably among the most influential law professors in various specialties. And what he found, certainly very consistent with what I would uh, say, is, is that uh, where you find 
uh, more political balance, or at least a significant number of people to the right of center, is in uh, a short list of uh, mostly economically oriented topics, like securities law, antitrust uh, law and economics. Uh, there you can find a real uh, ideological debate. I mean, plenty of liberals and plenty of apolitical people in both of those areas or in all of those areas. But there is at least uh, a, a real political spectrum. Move over to areas like constitutional law, uh, labor and employment, environmental law, international law, procedure, and uh, it's not uncommon to have the first dozen positions uh, in constitutional law, for example. Uh, you know, it, it's pretty much all outspoken liberals, and there are no outspoken conservatives in them. It's just the way that constitutional law uh, is, and that's. You know, I, I think you'll see the punchline coming, which is that um, from the standpoint of the future of the country, uh, securities law, let's face it, just doesn't matter as much as constitutional law does. The politically fraught areas, the, the areas that um, are going to have a big, big policy impact, are often the same ones that are uh, the most uh, lopsided. Yeah, not only does it not matter, I guess, in the macro sense, but it's not sexy. It's hard to encourage other people to go into those areas, especially if you want to be trendy. But the yeah. well, and, and also, think of it, if you are a, a con, someone of conservative views and you're dead set on becoming a law professor because you just know you're going to have a uh, better time doing that than any other use of your legal skills, uh, it is very tempting to move into a specialty like uh, securities law where you know that uh, it's not going to be a career ender for people to find out that you're conservative because its stakes are not high enough. Uh, you don't want to move into civil rights law uh, unless you have a particularly pugnacious personality because well, there is going to be a lot of scrutiny if you start writing pieces in that area that uh, challenge the, uh, the conventional wisdom. Yeah, you, you say that, that you made this point about people finding out you're a conservative. I remember when I was in graduate school, somebody came up to me and told me that um, they were a conservative or a Republican, but they didn't let anybody know they were in the closet, so to speak. Is that a common phenomenon? Do you have, in these 8 to 10, 8 to 1 or 10 to 1 faculty ratios of liberals to conservatives, do you have a certain small minority or maybe even a plurality, I don't know, of, of people who are more conservative but just don't want to show it because of this clubby aspect of the faculty that you described? That is a very common phenomenon, and I know many such people who keep their heads down and um, if it's a matter of applying for positions, they know how to sanitize their resume so that the Federal Society mysteriously disappears from it. Uh, not all that easy to sanitize one's resume. One of the um, uh, key credentials that people tend to get if they're moving into uh, high-end legal academia is a clerkship with a judge. Now, uh, there are a bunch of more or less centrist judges, but uh, it's also well-known which judges were appointed by Republicans and which by Democrats, and there's kind of a standing joke that although Supreme Court uh, clerks are in demand in general, uh, it had better not been with Clarence Thomas or you will have a whole lot of trouble getting in the office from anywhere. And did that apply at the somewhat lower courts as well? So um, my friend Brett Kavanaugh, with whom I worked in the, in the White House, if you clerk for him, are you kind of tainted for life? Well, <laughs> I don't know specifically about Brett Kavanaugh. I, I do know that uh, this is one of the things that you can't scrub off your resume. Uh, you've got to tell them who you work for, and uh, it does tend to um, uh, show your cards if there is a strong ideological component, uh, because it's well known that some judges uh, look for that uh, in on both left and right. They they look for uh, left-minded. 
of course. So, it, uh, you know, it is enough to make the difference for some people uh, in their, whether they want to try to hack it in legal academia or just go off and take one of the many other jobs that will be available to someone with good legal credentials. Yeah, one thing I found interesting in the book is that, that you talk about people who I guess are with the program to some extent, but then for some reason deviate or become traitors because I guess the hypocrisy is, is so evident. I mean, you, you talk about the, the case of uh, Richard Daynard versus Dickie Scruggs. Can you talk about that case and, and what it meant? Well, this goes back to the tobacco litigation. And uh, those who were following the press during the heyday of tobacco litigation will remember that although there were several professors who were quoted a lot, um, Professor Dannard of Northeastern what, uh, was constantly quoted in the newspapers, and uh, what he said was, at least to me, very predictable. He was always saying that uh, the tobacco companies were uh, about to be shown, uh, you know, to be, uh, you know, guilty and charged of, of whatever was being charged in the lawsuit, and that he was predicting victory for the uh, plaintiffs. He was um, uh, predicting victory for for long shot theories or what other people thought were long shot theories. And there were several strands of litigation, but the biggest one by far was the state Medicaid litigation, which resulted in, depending on how you count, about $248 billion worth of settlements and uh, an awful lot of uh, money, billions of dollars, went to a small number of lawyers who were representing the states. And uh, the amazing thing that then appeared in the newspapers was that uh, Scruggs had sued, uh, I'm sorry, that uh, Dennard had su sued Dickie Scruggs, the best known of the plaintiff's lawyers, saying that they had a deal where uh, Dennard would share in the contingency uh, fees, which, if successful, would have brought him uh, huge, huge amounts of money. If memory serves, it was hundreds of millions, uh, or more than 100 million. Um, the, um, what was shocking about this was that uh, the uh, press had just quoted him as being an independent um, law professor. And uh, it was hard to find, indeed, you could look through dozens of sites and not find any um, reference in the press to his being a participant uh, entitled to a per percentage share of the litigation. And yet the press might have treated what he had to say much more skeptically had it identified him as such. The Los Angeles Times, which had often quoted him, uh, ran a piece saying that uh, it, reporters that have talked to couldn't remember his uh, identifying himself as a participant in the litigation as opposed to just a, a well-wisher based on academic grounds. And it seems to me that there's a line there that um, you know often gets fuzzed up, but, but seldom quite as dramatically fuzzed up as it did in that instance, which is uh, we think of law professors in general when they appear in the media as presumptively disinterested in uh, the stories that they write about. Obviously, they have opinions, but we don't think of them as participants uh, getting money from the litigation, either as hired uh, team members or, or, you know, even more extreme, uh, owning a percentage of the, the results. And yet this line has been blurred a lot. I'm, I'm critical of Andrew, but he's by no means the only one who has blurred the line. And uh, that means that the uh, authority that law professors bring to the table, which is only partly due to their knowing so much specialized knowledge. It's also because we think of them as academics. Um, just as there was a scandal a few years ago about 
medical school professors who were too close to drug companies and who would sometimes uh, even let drug companies uh, ghostwrite um, research reports that they did, which you know was jumped on by, by Congress in, in hearings. Uh, there are instances where uh, law professors get hired supposedly as objective authorities, uh, and uh, there are there's reason to believe that in some cases they let the law firm ghostwrite their their academic opinion on something, which should, would seem to raise just as many troubling issues as in the medical school context. Yeah, I love in the Daner case how you talk about how the Los Angeles Times, based on the article, stopped quoting him for a little while, but then they started quoting him again. Uh, all these newspapers went right back to quoting him as just a law professor uh, uh, as other topics emerged. He was quoted on the effort to turn uh, soft drinks into the next tobacco, which was uh, getting a lot of attention for a while. And uh, even though there was clearly a, a bunch of contingency fee lawyers involved, uh, no one seems to have gotten him on the record as to whether or not he was a participant or just a well-wisher on that. And the press has very short memory. Yeah, um, one thing that I think is important to discuss uh, as we're sort of getting to the close of, of the time that you've been so generous to give me is this notion that right now we're facing budget crises at the state, at the local, at the federal level, and there are all kinds of hidden costs that are imposed by lawsuits generally that result from the teachings that the lawyers get at the universities and then they go out and uh, initiate these lawsuits against the government at whatever level, and it has huge costs for the federal government, the local government, and eventually for taxpayers. Uh, one case I thought was, would have been so amusing if it hadn't been so, so sad was the New York City anti-homeless program that attracted people that weren't quite so homeless. Uh, can, can you talk about that one? And here, uh, when we think about the cost of litigation, it's so easy to undercut it because uh, a lot of government expenditures are driven by so-called consent decrees in which some private group, uh, often a, you know, styling itself as a public interest law group, has sued the city or sued the state saying uh, that you're out of compliance with the law and the only way to comply is for you to promise to spend much more uh, and maybe reorganize the department to provide these new services and so forth. And this is what happened in New York. Uh, they entered into uh, litigation, uh, which went on for, uh, I think, at least a decade, in which uh, initially the city thought that it could provide all of these services, and then they got more and more expensive, more and more people were taking advantage of them that were not clearly homeless or were not clearly New Yorkers. And uh, you could get a free apartment you know, set up with restaurant vouchers and furniture uh, by declaring yourself homeless in, in the right context, and so uh, the expenditures mounted and mounted and mounted and became a, really quite a significant part of the New York City uh, budget, where New York was spending tons of money on many other social programs, too. Uh, but by that point, it was very hard to get out of it. First, there was a very unsympathetic judge, but uh, the way that these, uh, this whole area of the law has been set up uh, is extremely favorable to the private um, so-called public interest law firm, the legal fees, to, to go no further than the legal fees, are set up that uh, you know, heads they win, tails, uh, you, you have to call it even. You know, they, they win big legal fees if they can prove any of their case, and, and if you don't uh, get your legal fees paid for if you're the government, if, uh, if, if you are shown uh, not to have done anything wrong. So uh, you wind up with uh, uh, billions and billions, and I traced this out through school finance and other areas, billions and billions and billions of, of wasteful expenditures driven by litigation in the uh, uh, 
uh, area of so-called institutional reform litigation, which traces right back to uh, ideas from legal academia. Uh, and you could trace it out in areas like medical malpractice, too, where uh, you know, New York City, just to go no further than New York City, is spending vast amounts uh, through its hospital system on uh, suits, many of which are somewhat dubious as far as the uh, scientific reason why a baby is born with, uh, with birth defects or, or uh, whatever the, the theory is. But um, it is tremendously expensive to taxpayers. It's expensive to anyone who buys insurance for their, their car or their home or their business. And it's a type of expense that uh, is much, much lesser in most other comparable industrial countries. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that it's not just happening in New York and it's not just at the local level. But uh, you mentioned the case of the the Cincinnati monitor that's costing the city of Cincinnati millions, the California prison health situation is costing them billions of dollars, and then at the federal level, the Endangered Species Act and Indian claims that literally cost billions and billions of dollars and paralyze certain parts of the federal government. And often to the detriment of the uh, supposed point of the program, the example I give in Endangered Species is um, uh, it is so totally tied up by private litigation, uh, much of which is over the attempt to keep the land from being developed, that the Interior Department has complained at various points that it couldn't get around to listing any new endangered species because all of its resources were tied up on litigation. And that doesn't even make sense from a environmentalist point of view. Contrary to the whole point. And so you've got uh, government that is tied in knots. And uh, there's an interesting division here between views of progressivism and views of liberalism. And I um, use the opportunity to go back a little bit to FDR's day and to quote at some length, uh, the fact is that many of these same issues were around during uh, the that earlier period, and uh, FDR personally and people in his administration could be very eloquent about uh, not tying up the government with endless litigation, about the need to um, uh, you know, take decisions quickly uh, rather than only after uh, years of, of um, wrangling in court and uh, about the fact that otherwise well thought out policies could be tripped up by the, uh, you know, who's got the more clever lawyer or, or the inevitable chances of litigation. All these lessons somehow were unlearned around the 1960s or 70s. And so we got a system where it's incredibly hard to build a new public project. Uh, FDR must be spinning in his grave. It's, that's probably been banned because it might generate turbine energy. Um, but, um, you know, we've moved to a completely different kind of liberalism. It's been called litigation liberalism, in which due process is uh, exalted and actually getting the results of the, the end of the pipeline is deprecated. Yeah, maybe uh, FDR had a different perspective on these questions because he ended up going to Columbia Law School and not Harvard or Yale, even though he didn't finish law school. <laughs> uh, well, oh, yeah, Columbia was generating those ideas, too. But, but he, he had... As a governor, he had had to get a lot done, and that's um, uh, probably important in why he got the way he did. Uh, Walter, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I'd like to ask you our final signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is, if you were czar for a day, what changes would you make based on what you've learned in writing the book to our system? Well, and of course, the traditional libertarian answer to that is abdicate. Uh, and uh, if appointed czar, I would abdicate. Uh, That's like if William F. Buckley uh, won the New York mayoral race in '65. Asked what, what he would do, he said, "Demand a recount." Yeah. Um, more, more seriously, although I don't uh, think that I've got uh, you know uh, 
definitive answers. I would like to see more uh, variety in the business plans, as it were, of law schools. And I think our accreditation here is something that has really homogenized the law schools. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, you know, couldn't we do it in two years plus a supervised internship instead of three years? Couldn't we, um, uh, you know, do it in, in a way that uh, emphasizes the classroom experience and the acquisition of skills that people are going to need in, in, in practice? Um, it, very often it comes back around to, no, you can't do that because they've set up accreditation and uh, related processes uh, to stamp out competition from, from some uh, hypothetical law school that would do it that way. So, so that's one place to look. And there actually is a bit of encouraging news. The ABA and the AALS are both involved in accreditation. The ABA uh, apparently has used this crisis in the legal profession and the um, economic recession that has been so unprecedented to, to rethink some of these issues and it's supposed um, giving law schools more leeway on how to use tenure. They're not telling them that they can't have a tenure for most of their professors, but saying that they're not automatically, or that, that thinking of uh, granting accreditation even to law schools that didn't grant tenure to as many of their professors. And of course, the AALS, who, who rep which represents the professors individually, just you know, keeled over and had to be revived with smell themselves. You know, finally, you're getting some real debate about some of the uh, interesting issues of, of how differently you might set up a law school. You know, this has really been a groundbreaking podcast because I never thought I would get Walter Olson to come on and praise something that the ABA is doing. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you live long enough and you seem. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You've really been great. I appreciate the time and I look forward to talking to you when you have your next book. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Walter Olson the author of Schools for Misrule, Legal Academia and an Overlawyered America. Olson, who is not a lawyer, seems to be a little freer to criticize the legal profession from his economist's venue. And we really had a good conversation about the huge costs that certain trendy legal theories impose on taxpayers nationwide and even a little bit internationally and increasingly internationally based on what a few elite lawyers are saying at a few top schools. I think we had a really good talk. It's always fun to have smart authors talk about their books, and this is a very readable, very interesting book. Again, the book was Schools for Misrule. I'm Timmy Troy, the host of New Books for Public Policy. Join us next time for another conversation about an interesting public policy book. And until then, keep reading. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.